We're in Genesis 28 today, and we're going to read verses 10 through 22. So if you want to go there, there's some Bibles on the side if you want to grab one, or if you want to flip open your phone. Again, Genesis 28, 10 through 22. Now, the great band, Led Zeppelin, wrote a song called The Stairway to Heaven. And I don't know if they had our verses in mind today, but it is the perfect title for today's sermon. And along with that, we see a character in the Bible today, Jacob, who we looked at last week. And Jacob is someone we can all relate to. He, he messes up a bunch, uh, and he just always seems to be doing things that he shouldn't be doing. But what's fascinating is Jacob's name is Israel, and that name is then given to all of God's people. So he's a representative of us, and we can learn a lot about ourselves as we look at Jacob. And what we're going to find today in the story of Jacob is that he has some stages of faith that he is walking through. And we're going to find today that there are stages of faith that all of us are walking through. And so I hope today you're going to be able to identify where you are, what stage of faith that you are in today, and then you're going to be challenged a bit to press on to that next stage. So here we go. And, and, and by the way, uh, this, the, this stairway is not representative of your stages. In fact, you aren't walking up the stairway. What we find today is that God has come down to us. So, here we go. Genesis 28, verses 10 through 22. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of that place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you, your offspring, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me, and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I may come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God, and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. All right, so from this story, we're going to see these four stages. So the first stage is a hopeless wanderer. Second stage is these two stairways that we all must choose from. The third is the worshiping wanderer. And then the fourth is there and back again. 
All right, so let's dig into them. The first is the hopeless wanderer. And what we find here is that Jacob is that. He is the hopeless wanderer without a home and without a family. So the question is, what has happened that has brought Jacob up into this point? And the answer is that it comes down to a faith issue for Jacob. That's why he's a hopeless wanderer. Jacob has a, so here's the story. Jacob has a twin brother. And this twin brother is the oldest. And he's this older brother, by cultural perspectives, he's supposed to have the birthright and the blessing. But look at what happens. Earlier we saw, and we saw last week, Jacob steals this blessing and this birthright from his older brother. Now the problem is not that Jacob has the birthright and the blessing. God wanted Jacob to have this birthright and blessing. The problem was how he went about getting it. He stole it by deceiving his blind father, him and his mother, work up this plan of how they're going to do this. Now, here's why this is a problem, because earlier in Genesis, we are already told that God wants Jacob to be the one that takes the birthright and the blessing. So what Jacob should have done is just simply wait for God to do his thing, but he didn't do it. He lacked the faith to wait, and so he took the situation into his own hands, and he stole his birthright, and his blessing. Now, what's all this birthright talk and this blessing talk? Well, let me sum up from last week. So Adam and Eve have lost humanity's birthright and therefore the blessing. So the birthright is being underneath the rule and reign of God their father, but they want it out from underneath his rule and reign. So they give up this birthright, and therefore by giving up the birthright, they lose all the blessings of Eden. And so God makes this promise that he's going to restore the birthright to humanity and restore the blessing. And it's going to happen through one of the seed or the children of Adam and Eve. And so the hope is in Cain. Cain's a failure. The hope is in Noah, but he messes it up a bit. And then we arrive at Abraham. Now, Abraham is Jacob's grandfather. And God says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. You are going to be the one that brings God's people back to Eden and restores this birthright so they have right to enter into Eden. And now it's time to pass off this birthright and this blessing to Abraham's grandkid. Which one is it going to be? The promise is that it's going to be Jacob, but there's a problem. Esau is Jacob's older brother. And the father, Isaac, loves Esau more. He favors Esau. And the father's the one who's supposed to give the birthright and the blessing. And so it's about to go to Esau. And that is when Jacob and his mother take things into their own hands and steal the blessing. Now, here's what's happened. Esau's mad. I mean, he's furious. So he's trying to track Jacob down to come and kill him. And so Jacob's father and mother said, you got to get out of here and you got to go to your uncle's house before he gets you. And so he takes off. And what he doesn't know is that before him is his uncle who wants to entrap him. And it's all because Jacob took things into his own hands and didn't wait with faith for God to do what God is going to do. And so the situation is this now for him. He has a lion behind him who is trying to kill him, and he has a spider before him who's trying to entrap him in some web so he can get ahead in life through Jacob. And he's homeless, 
And we come to this scene in the middle of the night where he has nothing to lay his head on, so he grabs this rock to sleep on, and this is a way for the author to tell us, hey, he's got nothing. And not only are his hands empty with nothing, but his heart is empty because his father, though he has blessed him, is pretty angry at him. And along with that, the only one who he's ever felt loved from his whole life, his mother, he will now never see again. And this again all happened because he couldn't wait with faith for God to do his thing. Now, we aren't really sure if Jacob had a glimmer of faith. I mean, he is seeking the birthright and the blessing. So there might be a glimmer of faith, but if there is a glimmer of faith, he definitely needs to go on into maturity. All right, so what does that mean for us, for you? Well, before you're a Christian, you know you want something that you don't have, but you can't quite put your finger on it. And you're much like Jacob. You have this desire for the good life, but it is not with you. You're alone and you're wandering and you long for the good life of Eden and for paradise. And you search all the world for it, but it is hidden and you are unable to find it. It's buried deep in the ocean in some sh like some ship that is sunken that you cannot find. Or it is deep in the abyss of space not to be seen. And you don't realize that it's not in this world, so you keep searching for it. Before you're a Christian, you think it's there until God reveals to you that what you are chasing is not here. And so what you do is you try, your, try, you, you try to find Eden through love, through a career, through family, through a house, through a car, through enough money in your bank account, through some sweet vacations. But what you find is that vacation never gives you Eden. In fact, look at this. So take, take marketing. You know what marketers are doing? They're tapping into your desire for Eden. So there's this uh, place that sells houses around here, and their slogan is, the good life deserves a great home. And what they're saying is, hey, chase the good life. We all want the good life, and the way to get it is through a great home. And what they're offering you is Eden, and the way to get it is through a home. They're replacing God with a home. And it's a brilliant marketing move, except it's very misleading because in the end, it leaves you like Jacob. You feel like nothing has delivered for you. You're searching for Eden, and you cannot find it. And you feel alone, and you feel scared, and though you have gotten everything that you have sought after, you still feel like you have nothing. And you are lost in the wilderness, and all you have is this rock to be as a pillow for you. And, what, and your past is hunting you like a lion, and there's a spider that's trying to entrap you in the future. And so you end up sitting alone, thinking of your sins that are haunting you from the past, and shame and guilt become your only friends, and voices in your head and your heart start to speak of all the wrong things that you have done, and these voices do not stop. And then the hope of the sun goes down, and all you find yourself there is sleeping what feels like a rock and you are unable to close your eyes and rest. It's a beautiful picture of what our reality is. Well, it's not so beautiful, but it uses a lot of imagery. And it's there as a hopeless wanderer that you find God. 
or rather you realize that God has found you. And what you realize is that it's there when you are at your worst that God comes to you. When it seems like all hope is lost, and it's because that's the condition that you need to be in to be ready to receive God and his grace. And it's there that you're finally ready to meet the God of the stairway to heaven. So this is our second point. This is the second stage you got to enter into. Two stairways to choose from. Now, Jacob was not seeking God. God just shows up, and he surprises him, and he reveals himself through this dream that there is this stairway from heaven down to earth. And by the way, so three quick things. First, a better translation from ladder is stairway. Second, dreams are a thing in Genesis. More so, we see these dreams show up in any other place, more so than Genesis and in any other place in the Bible. And third, notice this, that God has even orchestrated all of his failures, all of his propensity to mess things up, to drive him to this place that God will call the house of God. In other words, he is there at the bottom of the stairway, and it's by his sin that God has orchestrated all the things that have brought him there. Meaning God will use even the things that you mean for evil and he'll somehow find a way to rescue you and bring good out of it. In fact, what we're going to find later on in Genesis is this is a theme throughout Genesis. That what we mean for evil, God will work out somehow for good. So it's at this place within a dream that Jacob sees something more real than when his eyes are opened. And it's when his eyes are closed shut that he sees something that would change him forever and will change us forever. He discovers the uniqueness of the God of the Bible. And in fact, this thing about Christianity is so unique that people often miss it. But it's everywhere throughout the Bible. And so what is it that's missed? That God does the work and brings the stairway down. It's not that we are working a stairway up to heaven, but God brings it down. Now, why is this such a big deal that God is the one who's coming down instead of us? Because it sets Christianity apart from absolutely everything else. Everything. This stairway is meant to be contrasted likely with the Tower of Babel. Now, this Tower of Babel, back in Genesis 11, was built up in a way for them to try to reach God or to reach Eden. So what they were building at Babel is called a ziggurat. And a ziggurat is a place of worship where you're building up this staircase so high that you're trying to reach God so that you can get to Eden. And the Tower of Babel, it was offensive to God because it was humanity's way of trying to earn their way up to God. This is what sets Christianity apart. That stairway does not exist that is built up. Christianity is a stairway that starts from heaven and builds its way down. In other words, you can't earn it. It's not about how good you are. You can't make your way up. You have to rely on God's grace, even despite your sin and humanity's propensity to mess everything up. He has made a promise, and his promise is, I'm coming for you. Not come to me, but I'm coming for you. So let me just say it like this. Let's see, there's a, oh, there's a slide right there. Okay, so 
every other religion will say that God is up here and we are down here and we've got to work our way up. But Christianity, God is up here, we're down here. Same thing, but God is the one who comes down and builds this staircase down to us. Christianity says you can't get up. It's not going to work. So God comes down to get you. Now watch this. Okay, let's take the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are a beautiful thing. They're a wonderful thing, but watch what we do to them and, and watch what often happens to the, to, the, to the Israelites. They instead, what they've done is they've exchanged the Ten Commandments for something they aren't. So watch the Israelites are slaved from, saved from slavery in Egypt, brought out into freedom, and then in freedom, God says, now here's how, you, how to live. Here's the Ten Commandments. But what they did and what we so often do is we take the Ten Commandments and we say, this is my way to God. This is my way to break out of slavery. This is my way to get out. And if I could get God's acceptance by following these rules, he will love me and accept me. And then I get Eden. And it's the exact opposite of how we're supposed to see it. All right, look at this. So Islam has five pillars or steps that you take to get to God. Buddhism has a eightfold path to enlightenment christianity has a person jesus a rescuer a deliverer not a step system for you to take but a person who comes back for you jesus is god in the flesh screaming at you that babel will not this tower of babel will not work Led Zeppelin had it wrong, actually. Led Zeppelin thinks, speak, sings of this woman who is buying her stairway to heaven. But in Christianity, it's God who builds the stairway and buys you back in. Flipped. Your only way in is by faith in the cross of Christ. And look at this. Not only that, that you can't get up, but here's why else Christianity is completely unique. Because only in Christianity do you have a glorious God who's intimate with you all at the same time. So in Islam, the idea is that God is glorious, but it is offensive, this idea that God would be your heavenly father. The goal in Islam is that you would submit to God. But in Christianity, it's about a relationship. Now, flip that. Let's take pantheism. Pantheism is about everything is God. Like God is in this. God is in this. God is in ourselves. He's all around us. Like you don't even say he. It's just God is the stuff. But think about this. That God is not glorious at all. That God can't save you from death. In fact, that God is coming after you. Because in order for all of this to survive, we must become fertilizer. So can't save you from sin, can't help you be transformed, just simply eat you up. If pantheism is right, then this is the best we get. But Christianity, you have a glorious God who is with us. He's come. The creator is writing himself into the story that he is writing. God's presence like it was in Eden, is only possible if God builds the stairway down and brings Eden with him. That's why Christianity is radically different from everything else. Now, some of you have started looking for God, but you think the way up is for you to climb up the stairs. Some of you think that you're a Christian, and you're not 
because what you're doing is you're trying to climb up these stairs and you're acting just the same way as the people did at the Tower of Babel. You're building a tower and it is highly offensive to God. Some of you, it's just time to meet the God who's come down. And he's intimate with you. You've got to go to Christ for that. And for some of you, you are Christians and you're falling back into what Martin Luther calls the default mode of the human heart, where you rely on your good stuff that you're doing to earn favor and God's love. It's so easy to do. You've got to break from that thinking. That's the thinking that's of the world and it's so, this world so wants you to think that way. I could earn it. I could do it. It's the way everything else operates. And that must be how God operates. But it's not. And as soon as you find that grace, the grace of God compels you then to become who you're made to become. Not your effort. But your, uh, your like being drawn in to God by grace. And once you discover that grace... It's then that you become a wandering worshiper. So this is our third step or phase. The Christian life in this world is like worshiping while you are wandering in the desert, while you are in exile. You are worshiping, longing to be home, though you are not yet home, but you worship anyways. So in the beginning, in Genesis 2, we are told that God put humanity, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden. He placed them down. Now, there's two words, two Hebrew words for this word that we translate as put. And these two different words, so one word is the same word that's used for the rock that is underneath Jacob's head when he goes to sleep. And look at what this rock becomes. He turns it into a temple where God is present. And temples are meant to be places that bring us into the presence of God like what? Eden. And Jacob names that place what? Bethel, which means the house of God. It's like this is the temple garden of Eden that's come down to him. And the the other word for put is in Genesis 2.15, and it literally means God rested Adam and Eve in the garden. So just look at what's happening here. You got to look at the imagery. Jacob gets to this place. He names the place Bethel, the house of God, This imagery of Eden where God's presence is and he lays them there and he sleeps, Jacob sleeps, in the midst of the wilderness. And he's getting some rest in this place. And then he's ready to give a tenth of all that he has to God. I mean, he's beginning to worship. And then this imagery of rest and peace in this temple is meaning to point us back to Eden. The only difference is this. Where is Eden? Where Eden was already created by God, this garden, and then God placed, rested Adam and Eve in the garden. Now it flips. Look, Jacob's there, and he has no rest at all. And then what does God do? He brings Eden down. This theme is traced all the way through the Old Testament, where these temples are being found on these mountains, and this God is coming to these places, making his presence known, bringing Eden with him. That's what's happening. And so when Jacob realizes this, he wakes up in fear, and he says, how awesome is this place? Now, the word awesome is not the right translation again. The best translation here is how fearful is this place? Now, why is he using this word fearful? It's a combination. What we have here 
is a combination of something that's amazing, but God is there, and so there's a bit of fear because of sin. And so here's why Jacob says it this way. Jacob knows that he is now on holy ground. And to come into the presence of God with your sin ought to terrify us. But what Jacob finds is grace. And when he finds that grace, by God allowing him to be in his presence, what he's finding is grace. And what does that grace do? It leads him right into worship. In other words, fear of God with the combination of grace will lead you to worship. If you found your way into Eden right now, you would very quickly realize this is a place that I do not belong because I cannot earn my way in. And very quickly I realized that coming into the presence of a holy God, bearing my sin and shame is not a good place for me to be. But he responds in worship because he's received grace. And look, look what he does. He uses whatever is around him to start worshiping. And so he takes this stone and he puts some oil on it and he creates this worship site. And then he makes a vow that he's going to give all that he has 10% back to God. Whatever God gives him as he's about to go off on this journey, he's saying, this is God's now. Whatever he's given me, I've given back. Now, this is the, the reason that this is important is because we have here a picture of a worshiper. But he's worshiping as he's wandering. You know what Jesus says? Fast forward. He says he has no place. Someone wants to follow him. He says, I have no place to lay my head. So if you want to follow me, that's true for you. Jesus is calling himself the new Jacob, the new Israel, the one who is wandering, coming to get us. And as we follow him, we will then become wandering worshipers as well. This is a picture of our life. It's a picture of life in this world, worshiping as exiles, even worshiping God in the midst of our enemies, worshiping God like you are on a ship in the middle of a storm. This is a picture of the mom who loses her child and continues to worship. The father who loses his job yet continues to worship all the more. The person with a broken heart that continues to worship God. The homeless man who sings worship songs in his tent. The orphan who walks to church. And the widow who finds a ride from someone from the church who will bring her here. And watching live streams because you're susceptible to the coronavirus or because you don't want to see what's going to happen if you get it. This is what life in this world is like. You're wandering in the wilderness, and once you find this grace of this God who comes, you can't help but worship as a pilgrim, as a wanderer. There's a maturity that you have to enter into here in this stage of faith. A faith that tells you the best thing for you to do, no matter what is happening in your life, is to worship God. And as you do, you will find yourself at the intersection between heaven and earth. It's axis. And it's there that you will find Eden come down to you no matter what is happening around you. And you'll be able to rest no matter what is happening around you. And look, he's worshiping. So what is worship? 
Well, he's making a sacrifice. So there's a maturity that is meant to be for the Christian as they go on where they're saying, whatever God gives me, I'm giving a tithe back to him for the sake of his kingdom and for the sake of his glory. And it's cheerfully done, not as duty, but as a delight. Now, why would that be? Well, it's because of what the worshiper has received. Everything. A costly savior. So, I mean, I mean that's, what is worship? Well, it's about sacrifice. Let me, let me read this to you. It's more than pouring oil on a rock, and it's more than singing songs with your hands lifted, and it's more than giving money. Romans 12, 1 and 2, says it like this. Offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Sacrifice. Meaning your entire life is now lived for God. So you guys were feeling like you were pretty mature, and now you're like, wait, my whole life. Yep. Let me, let me read this to you. Why would you do that? Let me read this to you. So there's something called a catechism. A catechism has a question and an answer. And the very first question of the Heidelberg Catechism asks this, what is my only comfort in life and death? And the answer, which is such an important answer, is that I'm not my own. But I belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Why do I belong to him? Because he has paid, fully paid for all of my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all of the power of the devil, and also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Look, you know that you are fully his now, because he bought you with the price of his life on the cross. And if you, if you mean that much to him and he cares that much for you, that he's willing to give his life for you and pay the debt, pay the cost with his blood, then, and you see the sacrifice that he's made, you say, I can do this for him. Not that you have to. You don't have to. But you get to. You want to. It's not duty. It's a delight for you. You are eagerly sacrificing all of who you are for him. Because you look at what he's done and you say, not I have to, but I get to. Press on into this maturity. Perhaps this is the next step in your spiritual pilgrimage. To give yourself fully to him. To stop holding back certain parts of your life or certain parts of who you are, or certain parts of whatever, just give them all of you and all that you have. And once, you're like, man, that's, there's another stage. So once you're there and you're worshiping sacrificially, he calls you out on an adventure. This is our fourth one, there and back again. So two things happen here. When you go there and back again, you leave, and you come back transformed, and you leave because you have been blessed in your worship experience, and you go out to be a blessing to others. So first, you're, you're blessed to be a blessing out there, and you return transformed. So look at Jacob. God says, leave this place where I am, and go, and through you, the, all the earth will be blessed. 
So he's blessed here in this place to go be a blessing to others. And God says, I'm going to be with you the whole time. I'm not going to leave you. And as he goes, that means the kingdom of God goes with him. And that's why he's transformed. And in his transformation, he leaves a scared little mama's boy and he returns a man of faith. He leaves without anyone who loves him and he returns to Bethel. Later on, we see with a whole family. And he leaves empty-handed this place that God has told him to leave from and he returns a man who has been blessed by God with great possessions. And we know it was a time of struggle for him. It says it in Genesis 31. But he's returned a changed man. Now, what is going on? God has something for him to do, to go and bless the world around him. And it's through him being faithful to what God has called him to do, which is to go out, that God does great work in him. So he's blessed to go out, and as he goes out, he's blessed as he's out because he's doing the work that God is calling him to do. The Spirit of God is empowering him to live the way he's called to live, and the same thing is true for us. And what's really going on, look, Jacob is carrying the birthright. And the birthright, the person with this birthright, it is their responsibility to bring humanity back to Eden. It's an incredibly important thing for him to have. And guess what? Jesus takes that mantle, and guess what he does? Guess what he says before he commissions his disciples? He, he, well, he commissions them. He says, go and make disciples of all the nations. What is he doing? He's giving us the birthright. He's making us sons of God, daughters of God, giving us the birthright to carry the blessing out to the world. And it's as you do that that you're transformed. So what does this mean, practically speaking, this there and back again for you? Well, macro, it means God has blessed you by making you a Christian, and now as you go out, you are to be a blessing to others, and you continue to be a blessing to others, wandering in the wilderness while worshiping, until one day God's finally called you to come back home to Eden. That's the macro. But the micro level is it means you're coming here to worship. And here you are being, your faith is being strengthened together with this church family. And then you are to go out to be a blessing to all out there. And then you return back there and back again. This is, the, this is the original calling of humanity, by the way. You want to know your purpose in life? God says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over it. So part of what that means is you go out and you have babies and you come back here. The grove is good at that. It also means, though, that you're bringing other people with you, that you're meeting along the way, your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers, your family, whatever, you're bringing them back with you. Being fruitful, you're multiplying. And you, it's, it's, here's what else it means. It means you leave here empty-handed. Now, why would you leave here empty-handed? Because you've given all that you have, all of yourself to God, and then he fills you up, and you leave filled up with him, and you go out, and you gather all the stuff, you do all the things that you're doing. You've got your work, you've got your job, you're doing everything, and you come here fully loaded, and then you say, God, it's all yours again. And then he fills you up again. Because you're trusting that by obeying him and doing the things he's telling you to do, he's going to bless you even more, like internally, like spiritually speaking. So you leave empty-handed and you, and you return full. Now, w w let's get even more practical. 
So I'm going to tell you what it doesn't mean, because I see this a lot. So somebody comes, somebody's going through a hard time, maybe they were part of the church later on, in, or earlier in life, they've left the church, and now they're like, I got to get my life back together, I got to figure this out, I am feeling hopeless, I am feeling depressed, or whatever, so they find their way into a church. And they get to the church, and they start getting lifted up more and more and more and more, and they're feeling good, and then poof, they're gone. What has happened? They were blessed. But they never took the next phase of faith, which is blessed to be a blessing. They never asked, ah, oh, what does God want me to do now? He wants you to go there and back again. There and back again. Jacob is blessed to be a blessing. And for some of you, this next step is that you're taking all the blessings that you are now receiving in God's word and through singing these songs, and you're taking them out to be a blessing to the world around you. For some of you, that's your next step. But look. You've got to know that he is with you when you go. That's what Jesus says to his disciples. I am with you as you go. And that is your strength to go out and multiply and fill the earth. Now, the question is, how is he with you? Well, his spirit dwells in the Christian. We know this, okay? So this is all throughout the New Testament. It's just constantly telling us the spirit of God is in you and with you. And this is a crazy thing. But in our text, what we see, something else. It says that the angels are with, him, with us. Like this is the, the meaning here. The angels. So I'm, I'm going to read to you. This is, this is the great Genesis scholar, Bruce Walkie, And he says of angels, angels are messengers from God sent to guard communicate and protect in some they are ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation this is the christian and the angels suggest that the lord who makes his presence known at bethel at this staircase will also be present to jacob through these angelic messengers it's fascinating so god's presence is known to us through these angelic messengers that surround us apparently So it's through these agents that God is present with us. So to be clear, these are not little baby angels flapping their wings like we see in our culture today. These are angels that when people in the Bible see them, they start bowing down and worshiping them. And the angels are like, stop, what are you doing? These things are things to be feared, yet they've got your back. And that is why you can leave not being a scared little mama's boy like Jacob was because you have the king of heaven with you and all of these angelic messengers. I mean, just picture that. You walk out these doors. Like, that's, like, it sounds so amazing that we're like, I don't think that's really true. But it's saying it here. The point is, you're not alone when you leave here. And you're not alone when you go out to be a blessing to other people. In your workplace, in your neighborhoods, in your families, you're surrounded with this. These angels, you're surrounded with the presence of God. That's what it's saying. For some of you, that's time to take this step, that you will now go and be a blessing to the world around you. And if you're like, hey, David, I don't know what that looks like for me. Awesome. Let's get some coffee. 
it would be so cool for me if everyone was just like, hey, David, what should this look like for my life? And I'm going to say, I don't know. Let's get some coffee and let's talk about it because I'm sure God has some stuff in store for you. I mean, don't feel like you're inconveniencing me. This is what I want. Like, let's figure it out together. And whatever this next step is for you in your spiritual pilgrimage, what you need to know is that you need the God of the stairway. You need to continuously look at him so you will be blessed spiritually by him. So this is our last thing we're going to say. Who is this God of the stairway? And how can you meet him? And how can you know him more? Well, look, look at this. This is fascinating. Okay, so the story with Jacob happens. Then later on in the book of Isaiah, this prophet writes, he says these words in Isaiah 64, Oh, that you would rend open the heavens and come down. This word rend means tear open. So tear open the heavens, God, and come down. Now, why is Isaiah saying this? Isaiah would have already known the story of Jacob and seeing the stairway that from heaven down to earth. So why is he asking for God to do what he's already done? Well, because Jacob's stairway down is only a shadow of what was to come. So what was to come? Well, look at this. John 1, 51. Jesus says this. Truly, truly. And by the way, when Jesus says truly, truly, or amen, amen, it means you can't argue with him. This is the thing. Like, it's truth. So he's saying, this is the truth I say to you. You will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending. This is the stairway again. But what are they ascending and descending on? The Son of Man. It's Him. He's the stairway. It's all pointing to a person. A person who's a rescuer. He's the gateway to heaven. Jesus says in John, uh, He says, what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Later on, other places we see him in John talking about the, sh the sheep, and he's the shepherd, and what does he call himself? He calls himself the gate. It's all him, a person, a rescuer. Not up to you. And look at this. Jesus is put upon a cross. He's put into the earth. Only he doesn't get put in to rest. He gets put in to be tortured physically and spiritually. And what's happening is like a magnet. As soon as he gets posted up on this cross, all of sin and all that's wrong with the world gets sucked up into him. And he takes on this curse. And there, when he dies, the curse, curse dies with him. And all that's wrong with the world dies. And then when he rises from the dead, it's then that all the goodness in him shoots out of him. And Eden becomes something that begins to take over our world like a virus. It's like a good virus that takes over everything. His kingdom is coming. It is here and it is coming. And there will come a day when it fully comes when all things are made right. And Eden has finally been brought down because the king has finally come down in all of his glory, holding nothing back, and everything is made right. That is the stairway to heaven. It is here 
and it is coming, and it will one day be fully here. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would do some great work, and you would come down to us now and bring Eden all around us. We pray, God, that you would make all things well and right. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.